Hi, welcome to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. My name is Jeremy Hall, and I'm glad you're here. Today's episode is more of a special presentation than an episode in itself. We have been discussing for the past few bonus episodes the most recent AAR conference, what went into it, and what came out of it. And a lot of the talk has been about David's presidential address. This was a huge project for our office, the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University, who produces this podcast, so thanks guys. We have been working on this as a team for months and months leading up to the event, research, reading, talking to people, synthesizing, writing, editing, preparing, and now, here it is. For today's episode, what we have for you is the full event itself, the 45-minute, 5,000-word AAR presidential address from David Gushy titled, In the Ruins of White Evangelicalism. I'm not one for trigger warnings and such, but there is racially charged language. There is talk of race and hate and racism, slavery, lynching, and extreme violence. If you choose to listen to our podcast with your family, fantastic. We're glad that you're doing that. And we think this is something that you might want to share with your family But the raw audio itself is not appropriate for all ears, at least not without some discretion. So, with no more of my babbling, the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, presented by the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercy University, gives you the 2018 American Academy of Religion Presidential Address in the Ruins of White Evangelicalism. We're glad you're here. This is Kingdom Ethics. Good evening, colleagues. It has been an honor to serve in the AAR presidential line over these three years, working alongside deeply skilled and committed members and staff. I'm especially glad to have played a role in conducting the search for our new executive director, who you have just met or met again more thoroughly, the very gifted Alice Hunt, and also to have had the privilege of working with the wonderful Jack Fitzmaier before Alice. I leave this office with high confidence that the American Academy of Religion is in very good hands including that of my successor in the presidency, the impressive Lori Patton, and I am so touched and grateful for your introduction. I recall with some amusement that three years ago, some in our membership expressed concern that an evangelical Christian had been elected president or would be president one day. Let's define an evangelical Christian at this moment as a theologically conservative Protestant. This uh, twittering about my election reflected the reoccurrence of a persistent religious studies versus confessional or theological tension that never really goes away in the AAR. 
But it was more than that because the taint associated with evangelicalism in the academy often has a distinctive quality to it. Those who then expressed worries about me had no idea that by the time of my AAR election, my relationship with white US evangelicalism, and that's who I'll be speaking about, very specifically not European, not Global South, not evangelicals of color, but white US evangelicalism, was, was heading toward a less than amicable divorce. On my side, disillusionment was deep over evangelicals' widespread sexism, support for US-sponsored torture after 9-11, resistance to climate science, and love affair with the Republican Party. On their side, my 2014 book calling for full fully equal moral status in the church for LGBTIQ people and their relationships had led to my rejection on grounds of essentially heresy on the part of many evangelicals. Even though my evangelical farewell was well underway by the time of the election of Donald Trump in 2016, the overwhelming support of white US, evangel US evangelicals that was 81% support for this man struck me with staggering force. I would describe it as a mix of astonishment, outrage, and humiliation by association. As a Christian ethicist who spent nearly 40 years of my life and nine-tenths of my professional career within the white US evangelical subculture, I cannot help but engage with this moral surrender to Donald Trump, which continues today. There is every evidence that this is a matter of wide interest, and I think it fits with the theme of this year, uh, religion in public. So I do acknowledge that this theme, this internecine argument within evangelicalism is not of great interest to everyone. That's fine. Perhaps many have decided to go out this evening, and I hope they have a wonderful time. I'm glad that you all are here. Every AAR presidential address enters the conversation in our scholarly Tower of Babel as just one strange tongue among many. 45 minutes from now, my strange tongue will cease, and it will be Lori's turn next. My talk begins with the belief, the conviction, that even in a time of high evangelical visibility, and apparent influence in the United States, that we are witnessing the moral ruin of white US evangelicalism, at least its most visible and vocal part with the widespread complicity of many others. This moral ruin is no small matter. It's very personal for some of us. Many of us who grew up in or converted into a certain religious community way back in the day, have to ask, what happened to all those Christians we once knew? You know, the people who were in church every time the doors were open, who poured over their well-loved Bibles looking for clues as to how to live in the way of Jesus, who often exemplified the very highest character in personal life. How did these old friends, mentors and models, end up with Make America Great Again hats 
claims about God's special anointing of Donald Trump. In Romans 13, defenses of defenseless children ripped from their parents at our southern border. Until 2016, I thought that the main problem with U.S. white evangelicals was that overenthusiastic embrace of the Republican Party, the marriage of convenience that has lasted about 45 or 50 years, and that has yielded, much of the time, very good political fruit for the GOP. But the Trump 81%, more than for George W. Bush, more than for Mitt Romney, more than for John McCain, forced a deeper investigation. In the face of an implicitly and explicitly racist candidate and then president, it finally became clear to me, unavoidable, that the Trump phenomenon is at least in large part about race. And so, evangelical support must also implicate race. I hasten to add here, the Trumpism is also about sex and gender. A whole different, or better, presidential address would have integrated both, but I wasn't able to do both. But let's think about race and evangelicals. This theme of evangelicals and racism was not entirely new to me. I knew, of course, as a Southern Baptist from conversion at 16, that the, the Southern Baptist Convention had been founded in 1845 on the disastrous proposition that slave owning should not be a bar to missionary appointment. And so the Baptists were split, as were all the other major evangelical denominations over race. I knew that Southern Baptists and others had sat through the Jim Crow and civil rights years largely silent. I had long ago in seminary internalized Martin Luther King's critique in letter from Birmingham jail of the white churches of the South, which in that unforgettable phrase, he said, have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. More recently, I had supervised brilliant doctoral dissertations by Fuller Seminary students Justin Phillips and Jacob Cook that, respectively, examined the tepid response of leading white evangelicals to the civil rights movement and found racist tropes embedded in the supposed biblical worldviews of evangelical icons like Abraham Kuyper and Harold Ockengay. I had also republished scathing critiques of white evangelical racism by William Pinnell and Soong Chan Ra, evangelicals of color from the 60s and 70s and now today, who have experienced and written about racism from within the US evangelical community. Still, a sense of this particular moment's apocalyptic white evangelical moral bankruptcy finally pushed me to see that I had so much more to learn, that I needed, I personally must engage in a more serious engagement with race and racism than I had ever personally undertaken. It was a kind of a, oh my God moment, this is about racism, at least in large part. And, and so then it struck me that in a career, a 25-year career, in which I have made my way from one injustice to another for research and sometimes activism, I have until now 
never fixed my gaze for very long or very deeply on the injustice closest at hand. White, American, Christian, racism. And this in a career spent entirely in the South at Baptist institutions, in Kentucky, Tennessee, and Georgia. And I was a moral leader in the Southern Baptist and evangelical communities, and so it dawned on me that the moral failure of my evangelical people in the age of Trump and my own failure to center racism and white supremacism in my work were deeply intertwined. I can only describe the realization of this failure on my part in the language of my faith tradition as conviction of sin. For that sin, I have no excuse. I was taught 40 years ago by the Southern Baptists that when you realize you've sinned, you must repent, which means receive the pain of moral conviction without evasion. Confess your wrongdoing honestly to God and those you have harmed and live in the opposite direction. This address tonight constitutes a public part of my repentance, which also has private dimensions. In saying this, I do not seek your praise or your condemnation, only your understanding of the position from which I address you. So I want you to understand that from this place of being convicted to the core, not just about evangelical racism, but about my own complicity, my research agenda shifted dramatically. I decided what I really wanted and needed to do was to sit at the feet of African-American writers and thinkers in a posture of eager listening and learning that I should have done a long time ago. Not to appropriate, not to appear progressive, but to learn and understand in the service of what James Cone called repentance and reparation. These, said our dear, beloved, late friend, are the primary moral obligations facing white Americans, repentance and reparation. A second grievous loss this year was that of another honored colleague, Katie Cannon. She was the first Christian ethicist to center African-American fictional works as authoritative sources. Following Cannon's lead and that of many womanist thinkers after her, I decided to read deeply as far as I could in African-American novels first. Cannon claims, quote, black women's writings have paralleled black history the patterns and themes in their writings are reflective of historical facts, sociological realities, and religious convictions that lie behind the ethos and the ethics of the black community. Seldom, if ever, is their work art for art's sake. My plan was that after delving into the novels, I would then read more deeply in African American history, theology, and ethics, and I did some but I became utterly transfixed by the revelatory power of these novels, most of which I had never read before, all but one. I tried to listen to and learn from everything they had to say. In particular, I felt the need to listen for what they had to say about white people, what they had to say about white people's character and religion. Now I could pause here to litigate the definitional issues around using the terms white and black to describe human beings. 
I acknowledge these categories are social constructions, damagingly real in their consequences, and entirely arguable, but as they are used in the literature, I will use them tonight. Cannon writes, quote, black women writers document the attitudes and morality of people who chafe at and deny the restrictions imposed by the dominant white capitalist value system. Her claim is that, at least for black women writers, their focus is not so much the omnipresent context of white racism, but instead creative black responses. It is as if the nature of the oppression of the racism is depressingly obvious, while the creative responses are what is truly revelatory. But for me, having under-researched this area, what I needed to encounter first was the treatment of white racism and its impact especially on white supposedly Christian racists. And so that's what I will mainly present this evening. So let me pause here to acknowledge three very real worries. I worry that leading scholars in the study of these novels are members of the AAR and might be in this room this evening. Your magisterial scholarship sets the standard in this arena. I am a novice. In my AER presidential address, I feel like a graduate student in the first seminar. So please understand that, and I ask for your patience and for your feedback. I worry, secondly, that the specter of a white guy of a certain age and background engaging extensively classic African-American novels is uncomfortable. I can only hope that my treatment of this literature tonight will be viewed as academically sound, humbly respectful, and coming from a place of broken-hearted repentance. Finally, I worry that this paper on white racism does not broaden its gaze beyond African-American experience to that of other groups who have been its targets and recipients. I can only plead the necessity of limiting my literature focus for this one address but I want you to know that my research agenda is going to continue in this direction. And so, the body of this paper draws from readings in just under 20, mainly classic African-American novels, contemporary and some older, in search of an answer to this question. How do the characters in these novels describe white Christian people's morality and religion? That's what I want to know. And what might that say to the current moment? So now, I must acknowledge that every novel that one reads is an individual work of art. Characters, lines, and scenes have their place within each work. We know this. Everyone should read these novels for themselves. If I could put you all on a reading program, this is what it would be. My purpose tonight must be limited to offering glimpses into these novels, seeing through their eyes into what W.E.B. Du Bois once called the souls of white folk. My effort at reflecting upon what I have read suggests three primary themes that emerge consistently in these novels related to white racism and its effects. And these are moral debasement of the racist, religious powerlessness, and perceptual blindness. Moral debasement, religious powerlessness, and perceptual blindness. So under these three themes, I'll do some exposition from these authors. So first, moral debasement as the spirit and result of white racism. 
These novels clearly reveal that the structurally racist society that white people created and sustain morally damages us. I want to say now that I, I will use the language of us rather than them when referring to white people so that I am not able to distance myself from the descriptions offered in these novels. Attempting to distill the specific elements of moral debasement, for now I suggest six deadly sins that the novelists observe in the races. And they are greed, pride, slander, arbitrary use of power, unchecked anger and violence, and alienation from human relationship. For each, I will offer a summary statement of what I have found, and then a few examples from the novels. The examples are bracing, and it's hard, um, it was hard to pick from among the options. In most cases, I'll offer two or three examples. So first, about greed, economic self-interest at the root. These novels suggest that white people enjoy massive economic advantages over black people, that we purposely created and today and have always maintained a society in which this remains the case, that white people act based on our economic self-interest, and that little stands in the way of that, that we created this entire system to benefit ourselves, and that this is pivotal to understanding white racism in all periods of American history. So some quotes from Alice Walker, The Color Purple. I know how they is. The key to all of them is money. The trouble with our people is as soon as they got out of slavery, they didn't want to give the white man nothing else. But the fact is, you got to give them something. Either your money, your land, your woman, or your ass. Langston Hughes from Not Without Laughter. He understood then why many old Negroes said, take all this world and give me Jesus. It was because they couldn't get this world anyway. It belonged to the white folks. They alone had the power to give or withhold at their back doors, always back doors. Richard Wright, the native son, I just can't get used to it. I swear to God I can't. I know I oughtn't think about it, but I can't help it. Every time I think about it, I feel like somebody's poking a red-hot iron down my throat. Look, we live here and they live there. We're black and they're white. They got things and we ain't. They do things and we can't. It's just like living in jail. Half the time I feel like I'm on the outside of the world peeping in through a knothole in the fence. Second theme is pride, an assumption of superiority. Racism in these novels is in large part about pride. In these novels, white people assume that we are supreme, that we are morally superior to black people in all meaningful ways. We don't have to say it. We usually don't, but we assume it. So the novels just offer periodic glimpses of that prideful sense of superiority and of those who are wounded by it and who must resist it. Again, from The Color Purple. Ain't no way to read the Bible and not think God's white, she says. Then she sigh. When I found out I thought God was white and a man, I lost interest. You mad because he don't seem to listen to your prayers. Hmm. Does the mayor listen to anything colored say? I know white people never listen to colored, period. If they do, they only listen long enough to be able to tell you what to do. From James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain. She looked out into the quiet, sunny streets, and for the first time in her life, she hated it all. The white city, the white world, 
She could not, that day, think of one decent white person in the whole world. She sat there and she hoped that one day God, with tortures inconceivable, would grind them utterly into humility and make them know that black boys and black girls whom they treated with such condescension, such disdain, and such good humor had hearts like human beings too, more human hearts than theirs. This next quote has the N-word in it, which I will not use. I will substitute black people. It's from W.E.B. Du Bois, Souls of Black Folk. In that wonderful book, that classic work, there's a fictional kind of parable chapter called Of the Coming of John. And it has this. The judge sat in the dining room amid his morning's mail, and he did not, did not ask John to sit down. He plunged squarely into the business. You've come for the school, I suppose. Well, John, I want to speak to you plainly. Now I like the colored people and sympathize with all their reasonable aspirations. But you and I both know, John, that in this country the Negro must remain subordinate and can never expect to be the equal of white men. In their place, your people can be honest and respectful, and God knows I'll do what I can to help them. But when they want to reverse nature and rule white men and marry white women and sit in my parlor, then by God, we'll hold them under if we have to lynch every black person in the land. Third theme of slander. These novels suggest that white people routinely slander the character of black people, that we create and continually recreate a degraded moral image of black people and act on the basis of that image. From Langston Hughes, again, The Ways of White Folks. Funny thing though, Ma, how some white people certainly don't like colored people, do they? They go out of their way sometimes to say bad things about colored folks, putting it out that all of us are thieves and liars or else disease, corruption and syphilis and the like. No wonder it's hard for a black man to get a good job with that kind of false propaganda going around. Then Toni Morrison's beloved, White people believed that whatever the manners under every dark skin was a jungle. Swift, unnavigable waters, swinging, screaming baboons, sleeping snakes, red gums ready for their sweet white blood. In a way, he thought they were right. The more colored people spent their strength trying to convince them how gentle they were, how clever and loving, how human, the more they used themselves up to persuade whites of something Negroes believed could not be questioned the more tangled the jungle grew inside. But it wasn't the jungle blacks brought with them to this place from the other livable place. It was the jungle white folks planted in them and it grew, it spread. In, through, and after life it spread until it invaded the whites who had made it. Touched them every one, changed and altered them, made them bloody, silly, worse than even they wanted to be. So scared were they of the jungle they had made. The screaming baboon lived under their own white skin. The red gums were their own. Fourth, arbitrary use of power. The novels I have engaged suggest that white people are capricious and unpredictable in how we use our power over black people. No force can constrain us while state power supports us. This is arbitrary power, and such absolute or near-absolute power is always morally corrupting. From Octavia Butler's time travel novel, Kindred, his father, that is the slave master, wasn't the monster he could have been with the power he held over his slaves. He wasn't a monster at all, just an ordinary man who sometimes did the monstrous things that his society said were legal and proper. From the color purple, 
The mayor's wife says to Sophia, all your children so clean, she say, would you like to work for me, be my maid? Sophia say, hell no. She say, what you say? Sophia say, hell no. Mayor look at Sophia, push his wife out the way, stick out his chest. Girl, what you say to Miss Millie? Sophia say, I say, hell no. He slap her. From beloved, out there were white people and how could you tell about them? Grandma baby said there was no defense. They could prowl at will, change from one mind to another. And even when they thought they were behaving, it was a far cry from what real humans did. The theme of unchecked anger and violence, my fifth of six. White people created a slave system of unspeakable violence and settled into the practice of anger and violence against black people even long after slavery ended. Often seeming to be on a hair trigger, in local situations, white people routinely resort to violence in these novels. Here's from Zora Neale Hurston's classic, Their Eyes Were Watching God. This is a scene in which a slave master's wife discovers that her slave's baby looks an awful lot like her own husband. It's paraphrased. What's your baby doing with gray eyes and yellow hair? She began to slap my jaws every which way. I never felt the first ones because I was too busy getting the cover back over my child. But the last lick burnt me like fire. I had too many feelings to tell which one to follow, so I didn't cry and I didn't do nothing else. But then she kept asking me, how come my baby looked white? So I told her, I don't know nothing but what I'm told to do, because I ain't nothing but a black person and a slave. And then again from Beloved. 1874 and white folks were still on the loose. Whole towns wiped clean. 87 lynchings in one year alone in Kentucky. Four colored schools burned to the ground. Grown men whipped like children. Children whipped like adults. Black women raped. Property taken. Necks broken. He smelled skin. Skin and hot blood. From James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Blood in all the cities through which he passed ran down. There seemed no door anywhere behind which blood did not call out, unceasingly for blood. No woman who had not seen her father, her brother, her lover, or her son cut down without mercy. Who had not seen her sister become part of the white man's great whorehouse. Who had not all too narrowly escaped that house herself. No man preaching or cursing who had not been made to bend his head and drink white men's muddy water. No man whose manhood had not been at the root sickened. The, th the sixth theme, alienation. In these novels, all is not violence. The novels depict times when white people seem to seek, or do seek, normal, healthy human relationships with black people. But we can't quite get there in these novels because we can't release our sense of superiority. Meanwhile, Black people have no particular reason to trust white people, and thus real human communion is always just tragically out of reach. From Kindred, Rufus, the slave master, had done exactly what I had said he would do, got in possession of the slave woman without having to bother with her husband, whom he had killed. Now, somehow, Alice would have to accept not only the loss of her husband, but her own enslavement. Rufus had caused her trouble, and now he had been rewarded for it. It made no sense. No matter how kindly he treated her now, that he had destroyed her, it made no sense. I'll go to Richard Wright, native son. This is an early scene 
when the rich white girl and her boyfriend are attempting to talk to Bigger Thomas. Bigger's thinking, he felt something in her over and above the fear she inspired in him. She responded to him as if he were human, as if he lived in the same world as she. And he had never felt that before in a white person. But why? Was this some kind of game? The guarded feeling of freedom he had while listening to her was tangled with the hard fact that she was white and rich, a part of the world of people who told him what he could and could not do. Let me shift now to the theme of the powerlessness of white religion. In these novels, there is considerable allusion to religion. White people's religion in these novels is always supposedly Christianity, but insightful characters wonder over this religion quite a bit. They see it as powerless, really, to correct white people's behavior despite a whole lot of church going. Its main power appears to be the ability to underwrite white hegemony with an all-powerful envisioned white God and a very Anglo Jesus who represents the status quo. It also seems to have the power to distract, the power to anesthetize the white Christian conscience. Like all the idols described in the Bible, white religion is most powerful in these novels in its ability to lead people away from the true God. This is from Ernest Gaines' autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. This is a scene set in 1865 when just-released slaves are wandering desperately looking for food and water, and they encounter a white woman who gives them a little bit of water but then has a little speech to offer. This is what she says. Don't think I love black people just because I'm giving y'all water. I hate y'all. Hate y'all with all my heart. I'm doing it because I'm a God-fearing Christian. I hope the good white people around here kill all y'all off. Hope they kill y'all before the night over. Now get away from here. Get away from here before I kill y'all myself. If I wasn't a God-fearing Christian, I'd kill y'all myself. Now that's some theology right there, ladies and gentlemen. From Kindred, some of his neighbors found out what I was doing teaching slaves to read and offered him some fatherly advice. It was dangerous to educate slaves, they warned. Education made blacks dissatisfied with slavery. It spoiled them for field work. The Methodist minister said it made them disobedient, made them want more than the Lord intended them to have. And then from Not Without Laughter from Langston Hughes, white folks' religion, Lord help, ain't no use in mentioning them. Because if the gate of heaven shuts in white folks' faces like the doors of their church in our faces, it'll be too bad. Yes, sir, one thing's sure, the Lord ain't prejudiced. Two quotes from Dorothy West's book, The Wedding, will wrap this up. Here is a grandma who is white on her white friends discovering that her daughter is about to have a mixed race baby. Grandma says this, the truth about her daughter Josephine would have knocked them over like nine pins. They, like herself, had too little left in their lives to have their faith in their divinity destroyed by Josephine's apostasy. And later in that book, show me one white man who can look at a colored man without saying to himself, I see a colored man. The only one I know of died on the cross and the other one has not yet been born. Keeping us color is one of their chief occupations. If they don't remember it every minute, they're afraid they'll forget. We're not children of God. And then finally, the theme of perceptual blindness, the trained ability not to see the obvious. 
Black characters in these novels clearly see white racism for what it is. They decry its injustice and they resist it. But white people are willfully blind. We choose not to see the evil we are enforcing and the suffering we are inflicting. We live in what seems to be a privileged fog, out of touch with obvious realities. From Langston Hughes, Not Without Laughter, I've been knowing white folks all my life, and they's good as far as they can see, but when it comes to poor black people, they just can't see. That's all. From Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain. In her tribulations, death, and parting, and the lash, she did not forget that deliverance was promised and would surely come. She had only to endure and trust in God. She knew that the big house, the house of pride where the white folks lived, would come down. It was written in the word of God. They who walk so proudly now had not fashioned for themselves or their children so sure a foundation as was hers. They walked on the edge of a steep place, and their eyes were sightless. God would cause them to rush down as the herd of swine. Then Ernest Gaines, a gathering of old men. Now ain't that just like white folks? Black people get lynched, get drowned, get shot, guts all hanging out, and here he come up with ain't no proof who did it. The proof was them two little children laying there in them two coffins. That's proof enough. Here, to end the quotes, I will break my pattern of staying with the novels and quote two different kinds of books. This is from James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. He wrote, it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. And then from our contemporary, Tanisi Coates, he writes, the metal that it takes to look away from the horror of our prison system, from police forces transformed into armies, from the long war against the black body is not forged overnight. This is the practiced habit of jabbing out one's eyes and forgetting the work of one's hands. So let me conclude. In my reading, African-American literary traditions offer consistent, realistic, thick, critical description of white Christian racism, even when that is not their main subject. These novels trace a long arc that contains far more continuity than discontinuity over its 400 years. White American Christians, in my experience, rarely tell the story of US history this way. We are far more likely to tell a story that goes something like this, things used to be bad in the long distant past, then Civil War, then Martin Luther King, and now we just have a few little problems. Whenever these books are written, whatever year their stories are set, the novels regularly work their way back and forth over multiple generations of history in a sacred process, which I now see as so profound, of remembering, grieving, and processing this history of trauma at the hands of white people, but these works simultaneously remember and honor the ancestors, a people who survived, who endured, who resisted, who transcended. The picture these novels offer is of a systematically criminal and abusive racist enterprise under the color of law, justified by an absurd ideology of white moral superiority, 
a system which inflicted and still inflicts massive oppression on black people and other people of color, and in which unchecked white power over black bodies morally ruins the perpetrators, whose religion, such as it is, does not constrain their evil doing, but instead either underwrites it or directs their attention elsewhere. These novels are revelatory. They continually return to the unforgettable symbols of American slaveocracy and what can only be called white terrorism, including state sanctions, state enforced or state permitted chains and auction blocks and whips and nooses and rapes and guns and marauders on horseback. These novels are filled with these horrifying images that are inscribed in the consciousness of the writers but they're, I think, rarely inscribed in the consciousness of most white people. My original question was, what has gone wrong with white US evangelicalism? I think that African-American literature offers so many insights, of course, that go far beyond that question, but I do believe that this research helps to pro provide at least a preliminary answer to my original question. For 400 years, devout, church-going, Bible-believing, white Christians have been full participants in the moral debasement, religious powerlessness, and perceptual blindness that is described in these novels. In historical perspective, recent baby steps toward recognition, oh, we might have a race problem, towards a bit of repentance and some premature kumbaya reconciliation efforts. They've not just been very, very recent, they also have been very, very limited, deeply hindered by the morally compromised version of Christianity that we ourselves constructed to anesthetize our consciences a long time ago. Much the same indictment can be offered of, of just white America and, and different expressions of Christianity in America, but I think American evangelicalism is different, today at least, for a particular reason in another dissertation that I'm supervising along with Gary Dorian and Andrea White at uh, Union Seminary, New York, Isaac Sharp will argue this. Over the course of the 20th century, not only were white evangelical leaders by and large intractably blind to their own racism, evangelical also became an identity that was intrinsically tied to whiteness of a particularly American sort as never before. Evangelicalism has never confronted the fact that its 20th century American iteration was built not so much around a theological identity as it was around a white cultural identity. Evangelical became, that is, a political identity for aggrieved white conservatives. This very much may help explain why it was that when 17 Republican candidates were running for president in 2016, that the most racially reactionary candidate representing the most aggrieved white conservative persona emerged victorious. And why this man, who I believe is a poster child of the moral debasement, religious powerlessness, and perceptual blindness outlined in this paper, today retains the support of 70% of white evangelical Christians. I am driven to the conclusion that perhaps Donald Trump is a continued favorite, not despite what he embodies, but because of it.
if Isaac Sharp is right, that evangelical in some way has now come to be reduced to a grieved white conservative, then all the lovely theology in white evangelicalism, and there is lovely theology, is adding zero substance to white identity, white evangelical identity or politics. If that is true, then Donald Trump makes perfect sense as a preferred evangelical politician or a politician for evangelicals. But that in turn means that today, fully 400 years after African slavery was introduced on this continent by white Christians, white supremacism, now in aggrieved post-Martin Luther King, post-civil rights movement, post-Barack Obama form, has not abated, it has advanced. And so, a critique that I once thought was radical now rings more true to me, that what many white Christians implicitly worship most faithfully is ourselves, our beloved whiteness, the nostalgized white communities that we remember and envision, and the white God that we have made in our own image, none of which has anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth and all of which leaves us wide open to the idolatry of Donald Trump. Now that, of course, that idea that what white people really worship is their white selves is pretty much what black intellectuals, preachers, and theologians, and novelists have been saying for centuries. Frederick Douglass, there's the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. Ida B. Wells Barnett, our American Christians are too busy saving the souls of white Christians from burning in hellfire to save the lives of black ones from present burning in fires kindled by white Christians. W.E.B. Du Bois, <coughs> a nation's religion is its life, and as such, white Christianity is a miserable failure. James Cone, black people did not need to go to seminary and study theology to know that white Christianity was fraudulent. As a teenager in the South, where whites treated blacks with contempt, I and other blacks knew that the Christian identity of whites was not a true expression of what it meant to follow Jesus. We wondered how whites could live with their hypocrisy, such a blatant contradiction of the man from Nazareth. And Malcolm X, if the so-called Christianity now being practiced in America displays the best that world Christianity has to offer, no one in his right mind should need any much greater proof that very close at hand is the end of Christianity. Now that was about 55 years ago that he said that. So I ask you tonight, was Malcolm right? Are we witnessing the end of American Christianity? I think at least this, we are witnessing the self-immolation of the majority of US white evangelicalism as it sacrifices its remaining credibility on the altar of Donald Trump. Even after this disaster, many millions will remain attracted to what I will now prefer to call U.S. white tribalist religion. And if you are somebody who has come from that environment and is uneasy about it, I have a little suggestion. Repent, repudiate, resist, and quite possibly run as fast as you can. There are a lot of post kind of on their way out white evangelicals who are more and more aware that the credibility of our community lies in ashes and are looking for something different to emerge. What will it look like? 
I mainly want to say we need to sit in the ashes for a while and really have some idea how bad this is. But something like this, maybe? We must acknowledge that white Christian theology largely was ruined by white supremacism. That looking toward the future, only a fully consciously repentant posture in relation to this poison theology will do. That's the starting point. And that after that, if we remain in theological conversation, we must privilege the voices of thinkers and communities like those we have listened to tonight that have resisted white supremacism to their core and have understood what they were dealing with. From now on, if we are in the conversation, we must learn to do theology collaboratively in a listening mode, rooted in deep interracial friendship and richly diverse communities of scholarly conversation. These look like the only worthy social contexts to do theology or ethics from now on, the only ones in which truly liberative, justice-making Christian theology and ethics can be done. That is where I hope to find myself in the remaining years of my career, if invited to participate. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. Have a nice evening. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. The Kingdom Ethics Podcast is a presentation of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercy University. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.